Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Hello, check one, check two. All right. So tonight we're going to be looking at Jesus, but I really, the whole point of the progression of this is that we're building one lesson after the other. So talking about what's in the Bible, obviously how we got it, why we can trust it, and the author of that is God, who we have to recognize is Trinitarian. So does, can anyone tell me what Trinitarian means? You guys remember what we, what we mean when we say God is Trinitarian? Three in one, but specifically three persons. One being, yeah. Three persons, one being. And then why was it so important that we recognize God as Trinitarian? Do you remember that? You don't even remember the most important part. (laughs) There you go. Right? Well, that's how Scripture reveals God, right? So first and foremost, if our authority is telling us who God is, our authority is explaining God as being three persons, one being, that he is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? What's the other, another reason? You guys know any other? Differentiates Christianity, right, between all other monotheistic religions, okay? It specifically differentiates us from um, Islam and Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness, and it differentiates us from um, from Judaism, right? Like these things are very meaningful in regards to how we see ourselves. Now, there are other things that differentiate us from them, but like that's a very key component of those things. And so we have to, we have to recognize that. Third reason is that it shows us how a God who is infinite can also desire to create and love. Like why God who, is, who has literally self-sufficient in and of himself would still want to create anything at all and share that existence because he's three persons, one being. The other, the last reason is because it shows us how God accomplishes salvation history and he interacts with the world. It's not simply that God is transcendent, but he is imminent. He is personal. He is noble. We can know who he is. And that is because of the way in which the Trinitarian acts within the world and beyond it. Tonight, we're going to look at at the second person of the Trinity, specifically the Son. Okay, we're going to look at who Jesus is, God's incarnation, not reincarnation, Okay, reincarnation is like if I were to die and then I come back as a fly, which meant I did not live a very good life in terms of like that theology, right? But that's not what, that's not what, that's reincarnation. Incarnation is something becoming flesh, not something that was already matter physically and then coming back into matter physically after it dies. That's reincarnation. Incarnation is putting on flesh, incarnate, in flesh. So that's what that means. And that's what we're talking about with Jesus. Jesus is the son, God in flesh, right? He's, God is disclosing himself to humanity in a way that would ultimately, it would stir our hearts and our affections. It would allow us to see him clearly and it would provide every ounce of redemption and restoration that was necessary for people like us. And so again, this is really important. But tonight, I promise, it's gonna be a lot more fun. This is some of the funnest, uh, I guess this is, I should say, this is the stuff I enjoyed the most. And so I hope that you enjoy it a lot as well. But I wanna pray for us, so let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful to be together again. God, we pray that you would continue to guide our thoughts, our lives, our feelings. God, that our whole lives could just simply express uh, the love that we have for you, Father, as we recognize and receive the love you have for us. And Father, I do pray that it is seen clearly through the person and work of Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. 
And God, I pray that in every moment we could just continue to surrender every part of who we are. And Lord, Lord, it's in your son's name, Jesus, that we pray through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. So one of the things, I'll just say this too, as we're on, before we move completely off the subject of the Trinity, one of the things that I've tried to even do within our language, because our language gets so fuzzy sometimes about the Trinity uh, when we're talking about God, is incorporate that Trinitarian language into the way that I pray. And so I'll often end prayers with, in the name of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, because I'm ultimately praying to the Father and I'm doing so because I am in Jesus. Like the name of Jesus is what I claim as my, as like part of my own identity now. Like I'm in him. And that's what, you know, Paul says throughout all of his letters that we're in Christ. Like that actually identifies who we are. That's, like, that's why we can actually change. Like we can be Christians who no longer are stuck and, and like confined to old behaviors or identities because those things are passing away. They're being put to death and we're actually putting on a new identity in Christ. And that's what we try to help really as pastors, try to help people see over and over again is that by acknowledging and understanding your new identity in Christ, that you will actually become changed through that that you will no longer feel like you are enslaved to old passions or sins or identity. You're free into this new identity in Christ. And so we pray in that name, but also we pray through the power of the Holy Spirit because the only reason that we can even say that name and that we belong in, in Christ is because the Spirit has taken up residence in us. Again, that Trinitarian life of God working in us at all times. It's a beautiful part of what we do. But tonight we're looking at Jesus, okay? So specifically, we're gonna look at Jesus as fulfillment, Jesus as divine, Jesus as human, okay? Jesus as fulfillment, Jesus as divine, and Jesus as human. So here's what I want to do. I just put a small section of this on your paper because it would have been a lot of text, but I just want to read this passage for you. This is right after Jesus has resurrected and he hasn't ascended yet. He's got a new physical body and not everyone quite sees that it is Jesus because it's a new physical body. He still bears the wounds that he had in his first, that first body that was ultimately crucified. But now it's as if people don't quite recognize him. And so it's an interesting thing, but he is, it, we have this scene in Luke, in Luke 24, after the resurrection happens, where Jesus comes and he's walking along with these, these two men who are talking about all the things that they saw in Jerusalem at that time, all the events that they saw and kind of like they just have a lack of hope because what they saw was the king and this Messiah that died. And that's kind of the last that they heard of it. And so here's where we pick up. It says in Luke 24, 15, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, right? That's the first five books of our Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and all the prophets. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So here's what I want you to see tonight. First and foremost, every part of scripture was always pointing to Jesus. This is what makes the Bible, in my opinion, such a compelling and amazing book. Because in every way, every story starts to sh- like just be an arrow pointing to Jesus the whole time. And you don't realize it until Jesus comes and he lives his, his short life, but he ends up fulfilling so much of what the Bible was pointing to. And it's amazing, right? Because it's not just as if this Bible, we talked about this, the Bible wasn't just written by one author who had a really good idea for a cool story. Like this book was written by tons of authors at different times in history of recording real events that happened and then Jesus comes and he fulfills all of them. That's a stunning thing. And that's what I want you to see tonight as we look at Jesus. That Jesus is the point that we must understand like the son that we understand God revealing himself through the person and work of Jesus. And that's why his whole book is pointing to him. Jesus as fulfillment. So the first one is Jesus as Adam. Jesus as Adam. And some of these will sound familiar to you. Jesus as Adam. Now, if you remember, right, Adam was what? Who was Adam? The first human being, right? The first human being. But he did what? He sinned, right? He cut himself off from God. And therefore, in light of those things, they cut, Adam and Eve cut humanity off from God. So what happens that um, Paul even begins to tell us is that Jesus is actually the new Adam. That just like Adam was created from from dust and not the womb of a a mother, or, uh, well, I guess of the conception of a mother and, and, uh, and husband, right? So Jesus was conceived not from the conception of a mother and husband, right? Like he was conceived through the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit. So there was this old Adam that ultimately brought death into the world. And there is a new Adam in Christ that is now bringing life into the world. And this is why Romans 5 says, uh, therefore just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, Death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? So you can see that there's this juxtaposition, there's this comparison, there's this old Adam that brought death into the world, there's a new Adam that's bringing life into the world. And you can actually see this as well in Luke 3, when he starts his genealogy, his, his, his genealogy is specifically different than Matthew's genealogy in how it's laid out. And the reason is because Luke wants you to see that this is the new Adam. This is exactly who we were waiting for. We needed this new humanity to start a new humanity that didn't have to do with just flesh and blood. It had to do with something spiritual as well that was happening on the inside. That's why Luke ends his uh, genealogy with the fact that he was a son of Adam. And what does Jesus do right after that, those temptations? We talked about this in our Deuteronomy class, even if you were in that class. What happens right after Luke's done naming that genealogy? Do you remember in Luke 4? He's tempted by Satan. And what does Satan tempt him with? Food. 
This is the new Adam. This is the new humanity. And he is the one who passes every single test and is able to be perfect in every way and become the humanity that ultimately Adam and we never could. And because of that, he is starting a new humanity that now includes us by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's a stunning, stunning aspect of what the Bible is pointing to. Jesus also, Jesus as Isaac, right? Jesus as Isaac. So if you remember in general, um, <clears throat> Abraham has to, is, is called to sacrifice Isaac. Do you remember that story? Where Abraham um, brings Isaac up to the mountain and God says, you're going to sacrifice your son for me, right? And what happens is Abraham, Isaac's like, what are we doing, dad? And, and Abraham's like, oh, we're just gonna make a sacrifice. And, I, and Isaac's like, well, where's the lamb? And he's like, God's going to provide it, you know. And he gets up there and he's ready to plunge the dagger into Isaac when God stops him and he provides the ram. But this is, again, a foreshadow into the future. This is what ultimately would happen with Jesus. Jesus would actually be that, that, that sacrifice, that substitution that would come in place where, that would ultimately allow all of the covenant promises to come to fruition in the way that they always needed to be. So Jesus as Isaac. Jesus as secondborn. Jesus as secondborn. Jesus as secondborn. Now you're going to have to follow with me a little bit on this one, okay? Because if you don't, this is part of why um, really reading your Bible more and more over and over, you start to see these connections. And this is kind of what we talked about briefly in the inductive Bible study approach, where you're looking for words that are being repeated, or you're looking for ideas that have parallels. And in the book of Genesis, starting from the beginning of Genesis going onward, these, there are parallels all over the place, okay? Starting from the very beginning to the very end. I'll give you a couple, okay? So for instance, <clears throat> what, happens, um, what happens when, when all of humanity tries to build a tower? What does God do? Tower of Babel, what happens? They, they're sent around the whole world, right? They're all separated, that's in Genesis chapter 11. What happens in Genesis chapter 12? God calls Abraham because he's going to bless the world with him. And so right there, we have these juxtapositions, this worldly empire that's being scattered and a new, and a new nation that's being created and formed that's actually going to bring all the nations back together, that every nation would be blessed through this one man. And that's where we start to get on this trajectory with Abraham and his life. Now, Abraham has what? Oh, I should, I should back up. Adam has how many sons? Two. And they're Cain and Abel, right? But they have a feud. Abraham has how many sons? Two, right? Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac has how many sons? Two. Jacob and Esau. The pattern starts to differentiate with, um, with Jacob when he has 12 sons and they become the 12 tribes of Israel, Right? But the point is, every single time in those two son parallels, every time you see those two sons, it's not the firstborn that gets the blessing. Every single time, it's the secondborn that gets the blessing. That's not how it was, was intended. It was always supposed to be the firstborn got the double inheritance. But it never happens because of some bamboozling or killing or something that goes on within that, within that you know, level. And that's what, again, pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the second born son. He's the Adam. He's the new Adam that comes about as the second born son and receives the inheritance that Adam was always supposed to have. But now this, this inheritance starts to come and he becomes the first born from the dead. 
He becomes the firstborn of this new humanity. And so there's this great collision where at one level, he's the secondborn son receiving all the blessings. But then at another level, he's the firstborn from the dead, which includes every person who will believe in him and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so again, we're seeing these parallels and how all of scripture is pointing to them. There's so many, but I'm not gonna go through all of them. I'm just gonna go through some big ones. So Jesus as Joseph, Jesus as Joseph. Joseph was Jacob's son. Jacob had 12 sons, right? And what happened to Joseph? You guys remember? He was betrayed, right? By his brothers, right? Now, again, this is pointing to Joseph. So if you remember what happened at the end of Joseph's story, that he, he finally comes back to his brothers and he says, don't worry about this. You don't need to worry about this. What happened was God actually ordained all of these things to happen. And in ordaining them to happen, I actually was able not only to help Egypt and the whole world be able to survive the seven years of famine that would come, but I was actually able to therefore protect and provide and sustain the covenant people when they were gonna be at their weakest. It was all a way to protect the covenant people and the promises God had made to them. That's what he says at the end of that story. And then again, if you look, there is the parallel to Jesus' life. How many apostles did he have? Twelve. Was he betrayed by his apostles? Yes. And what happened after he died and rose again? It was all ordained by God to bring a blessing to the covenant people, to those who God made the promises to that would accept and enjoy every part of what God was wanted to give to the whole world. Again, we see this mimicked through these things. And I've tried to provide those New Testament references for you to start to see some of those connections of how they, of how they um, work together. Jesus as Moses. Jesus as Moses. So obviously, both Jesus and Moses were babies that were initially in danger. Who were they in danger by? The ruler at that time who wanted to kill the babies at that time because ultimately they were a threat to the empire. Pharaoh wanted to kill all the newborn babies because the population of Israel was getting too immense and it was a threat to the empire. Herod wanted to kill all the babies in Bethlehem because it was a threat to his throne, okay? Again, we see the parallels. Um, in, with Moses, he runs from Egypt, right? He runs, he gets out of Egypt. Jesus actually runs into Egypt to get away from um, the, the attacks. Uh, Moses walks through water and then goes into the wilderness Jesus goes from his baptism into the wilderness. How long were the uh, Israelites in the wilderness? You guys remember? 40 years. How long was Jesus in the desert? 40 days and 40 nights. These numbers, these, these parallels, they have significance. All of scripture, it's pointing to who he is. Uh, G Moses brings down the 10 commandments from the mountain and Jesus preaches the sermon on the mount right? So right after they get, th like while they're in the wilderness, after that wilderness journey is over, they, uh, he comes down with these 10 commandments and the Sermon on the Mount is the same thing. He, as, after he gets out of the wilderness, he brings down those 10 commandments. And then uh, Moses goes on the mountain in Exodus 34 and what's happened? What happens to Moses? He glows, right? From the glory of God. And no, people can't even look at him. He's got to wear a veil over his face because people, when they look at him, it's just, it's too bright for them. What happens when Jesus goes on the mountain in the Mount of Transfiguration? A similar thing, right? He's transfigured. He's, his glory is shining in a way that everyone starts to see uh, that this is who he says he is. And actually two people show up on that mountain. Do you remember who they are? 
Moses and Elijah. And that's because Moses represented the law, these first five books, and Elijah represented the prophets. And so they are actually testifying to the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those things, just like what we read in Luke. Then we have Jesus as David. Jesus as David, right? So David was a lowly shepherd, right, initially, and before he is basically invited to become king. We know that Jesus was a a lowly, like especially economically, um, into a poorer family, right? This wasn't the kind of guy that people thought would be Messiah. Like this, even the people in Nazareth, it's like, well, how could this, this isn't this Mary's son, isn't this Joseph's son? This guy's a carpenter. How, like this is again, that parallel. Um, David defeated enemies of God in surprising ways. If you think about the, the small little stone that took down Goliath. And obviously Jesus defeated the all enemies of God by a surprising way, by his own death. By his own death, he actually defeated the powers of death and sin and death. Um, David desired to build God a temple, but he was unable to because he had shed too much blood. Jesus said, tear down the temple in three days. I'm gonna rebuild a new one for you. And he obviously would shed his own blood to do that. There are these differences in the sense that we're seeing the weaker person in the story and yet they're also a celebrated main character but they're always pointing to Jesus always there's these parallels that run throughout Jesus as Elijah Jesus as Elijah so Elijah um, is a prophet of God and what happens is he goes to a widow's house and what is he the one of the first things he he does there is he makes Bread, like miraculously. He gets bread together and he's able to feed everyone in the household despite the fact that they really didn't have much for to be able to do that. Who also does that with bread? Jesus, when he feeds the 4,000. Elijah resurrects a child from the dead in an upper room. Who else does that? Jesus also does that. And Jesus does tons of miraculous things in general that mimic some of these prophetic callings. Um, Elijah confronted the leaders of Israel, like King Ahab and Jezebel wanted him dead, right? Because he was ultimately calling out their sin. Jesus also confronted the rulers and the leaders of Israel and they wanted him dead. And ultimately they would have their way, but ultimately it was actually God's way the whole time. It was God's plan. Elijah called down wrath, the wrath of God on sin when, he was, when they had that competition right, between the, uh, the, the prophets of Baal and, and Elijah and Yahweh. And he basically, they were like, all right, we're going to see who ends up actually responding, whether it's, whether it's Baal or whether it's Yahweh. And of course, Baal doesn't respond at all because he's not real. And Yahweh does. In fact, they douse the wood over and over again, and yet it still flames with a burning fire. And after they recognize that fact that Yahweh is God, which is exactly what Elijah means, Great name, by the way, strong name, you know. Uh, Yahweh is God. That Once that happens, God literally smites all of those prophets of Baal. At that very moment, the wrath of God comes down. In Jesus, the wrath of God comes down as well, but it's on himself. Jesus takes it on himself to save sinners like the prophets of Baal. He takes that wrath upon himself. Elijah was pursued by an enemy into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and he was fed during that time. And Jesus was obviously pursued by an enemy into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Elijah called a disciple to carry on the mission and, when, and then was taken to heaven, right? He rode in a chariot of fire into, it says, into heaven. Jesus called 12 disciples to be, to be apostles to be his disciple and he ascended into heaven. 
Okay, there are these parallels, again, over and over again. These are, I'm just, I'm skimming them right now. There's more than this, and that is what makes the Bible so stunning and amazing. When you start to read it with eyes that are looking for Christ because it's everywhere, because that's what God wants you to see, because Jesus is the revelation of who God is. That's what, that's what he's trying to get us to see is that you cannot understand. We can't, I can never convince you that God existed unless I actually helped you understand who Jesus was. Because there's no way that you would even want to believe in a God or something out there unless you started to see his very heart for who, you, who he sees you as, which is not this disgusting thing. It's this precious child that he's desperate to save. And ultimately, that's what Jesus shows us over and over. And then we have scriptures, scripture prophecies, right? We have the prophecies of scripture that are looking toward Jesus. Now, some of these are ones that are talking about the Messiah in particular, but also some of them are ones that we get from the gospels when they're quoting. Matthew does this a lot. And that's because Matthew's gospel as a whole is written primarily to a Jewish audience. And so he's using Old Testament scriptures all over that gospel because he's trying to get the Jews to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And so the the couple of these that we see, the conquering offspring, this one's not mentioned in the gospels, but it's one that we believe is the first prophecy that was ever made in scripture. The the conquering offspring, it's from Genesis 3.15. It's when God comes and he pronounces the curse over Adam and Eve, and ultimately because of what has happened, that the ground is going to be like hard, they're gonna toil to work it, that, that, um, that there's gonna be pain in child labor and all these things. And then he says ultimately that, there will become an offspring that is going to crush that serpent's head, that it will strike his heel, but he will crush its head. And so ultimately, again, we see that in the cross where Jesus died. And that's kind of like that bruising the heel that that he might have, he injured Christ, right? But ultimately through Christ's death and resurrection, it was actually Satan who was crushed and ultimately defeated within that. And so again, that's how that, that prophecy comes true. The virgin birth, Isaiah seven fourteen talks about there will be a virgin who gives birth. Um, the Messiah from Bethlehem is from Micah 5, 2. The messenger who prepares the way, which is very much John the Baptist. Um, Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3 both talk about that, preparing the way for the Messiah. The pierced Messiah is Zechariah twelve ten, And the suffering servant, which is probably the clearest of them all. Like it's pretty amazing how much Isaiah 53, that whole chapter, you can just see Jesus all over it. And it's just, again, a stunning thing when we begin to recognize that this was written hundreds of years before Jesus had even lived. Um, and then the covenants as well testify to who Jesus is. So Noah, the covenant with Noah happens in Genesis 6. And if you remember, ultimately what happens is um, God destroys the world because of how terrible sin had come. It was destroying lives in significant ways. And so ultimately, um, after God floods the earth, he provides a rainbow and that becomes the actual sign of that covenant. And that's what um, it was for us. He says, every time you see a rainbow in the sky, this, this is actually a reminder. It's a reminder for you, but it's actually more so what God says, it's a reminder for me. It's a reminder so that even when you see the rainbow, it's actually what you can do is you can say, oh, God is reminded even in this moment of the promise that he made that he would not destroy the world in this way again. But in this covenant, some people think that the reason the rainbow was chosen was because right after the wrath of God, it was almost like a bow, like an arrow pointing up to God because he would be the one who would intercept the wrath the next time through Jesus. And so that covenant is pointing to him. 
And Jesus, and again, it's this reversal. It's this, and which is a lot what you see from the Old Testament to the New, that there's this reversal where the Old Testament has kind of the, again, these flawed characters um, that end up um, have, getting to have things that ultimately Jesus would give up in order, even though he was the perfect character, uh, in order to bear the wrath. And so even with this, it's Noah who was the righteous person and was saved. Everybody else was destroyed. With Jesus, he is the only righteous person, but it's him who dies and all the unrighteous are saved, right? And so again, we see this flip. Abraham uh, with uh, the covenant with Abraham, ultimately that God would make a great nation from him, that he would have children, that he would bless, be a blessing to the world. Um, And ultimately, um, we see this again being fulfilled in Jesus. You can see this very clearly in Galatians 3, 5, where it says that this offspring actually truly was, ended up being Jesus because he was the one who fulfilled the covenant in every way it was supposed to be. And um, the covenant with Moses, this is the covenant that was made on Mount Sinai, right? Where the covenant was um, made and, they gave, and he had a sign of, uh, the sign of circumcision actually I should say was Abraham and the sign for the Mosaic covenant was the Sabbath. The Sabbath day was the sign for that. Um, and ultimately Moses was that great leader that would lead everyone into the promised land um, but ultimately, Jesus is the, is the true leader that fulfills the, that covenant, the covenant promises, that gets the, uh, the blessing from that covenant and leads his people into the true promised land. David is the king, right? The, he was the king that everyone loved, that like expanded the empire of Israel farther than it had ever gone before. Um, and he was essentially the, Messiah, the initial Messiah, the initial anointed one, the initial Christ in that way. Christ literally means anointed one. And it's literally just the Greek of Messiah. Messiah is Hebrew, Christ is Greek. So that's how those connect. Is when you see Jesus Christ, which is used, Christ is used over 500 times throughout the New Testament. It's because there's an emphatic tie-in. This is the Messiah. This is who we were waiting for. This is who it was. And the reason they were waiting for it is because of the covenant that was made with David in 1 Samuel 7, that where, G, where God promised um, David that he would ultimately bring about a king from his line that would ultimately bring about the renewal of Israel. And this is who we see Jesus to be, what we see Jesus to do. In fact, so this is gonna little, get a little complicated. And if you guys don't think this is interesting, then I don't have anything for you because this is so interesting to me, okay? <laughs> so, um, so Matthew, Matthew's gospel. Matthew's gospel how does, how does Matthew's gospel start in chapter one? You remember? It's a genealogy, right? But specifically, there's something he does that's unique. Do you remember what it is? We talked about, or I don't know if we talked about this actually. Uh, that is Luke's. Yes. So in Matthew, this is what it says. It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David the son of Abraham. So he lists David first, then Abraham, because he wants you to see at one level that obviously Jesus is from Abraham, that he is from the promised people, like the covenant people. But he also wants you to see, actually before you see that, he wants you to see that this is the son of David, the Messiah. This is who we were waiting for. Now here's where it gets really interesting, what Matthew does here. If you look at the generations between each um, set of names, which he gives three sets of generations. Um, there are 14. He says there's 14 with each one. Uh, in verse 17, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile of Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Okay? So he says there's 14. Now here's why it's interesting. It's because 
in Hebrew, David's name is only three letters long, okay? It's three letters because they don't have vowels like we do. They just have, they got vowel markings, but even that was later on. But the point is, his name was Dalit, Vav, Dalit, okay? Those are the three Hebrew letters, Dalit, Vav, Dalit. So it's kind of like our D and our V and our D. That's basically what it are. But in their alphabet, where those fall in their alphabet is actually, Dalit is the fourth letter, kind of like similar to ours, A, B, C, D, right? It's the fourth letter. And Vav is the sixth letter, right? And then Dalit again is the fourth letter. What does that add up to? 14, right? So again, he's tying it all together. And I know it sounds crazy, but this is actually a thing. This is a, a, a common, these are essentially literary devices that Jews are using at this time. And so I, it's not like some weird like numbers game that we figured out. Like this is a very common practice. Like if you think of parallelism or contrasting or uh, the repetition of words, like anything that people would use for a literary device, this is exactly what they would do as well. It's called gematria. So if you Google that, I'm telling you, it'll come up. It's a real thing. This is what they do. Matthew is embedding this story into the narrative because he wants you to see that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Messiah. Everything was pointing to this moment that Jesus is the Messiah. Isn't that wild? It's just so interesting. Okay, uh, and then the new covenant. Obviously, the new covenant testifies ultimately to what Jesus was, what came to do. It was to, not just to fulfill the old covenant, but it's also to start a new one, which is why we have baptism. It's why we have um, the Lord's table, right? Because these are actually signs of the new covenant for us. Instead of circumcision, we are baptized, right? Instead of a Sabbath day, we take part in um, the Lord's table. And again, it's not to say that like you can't practice Sabbath or that's not a good thing or, you know, circumcision or whatever. But the point is mostly to say that like we still have signs that commemorate the promises of God, especially the ones that Jesus inaugurated by his life, okay? So anyways, I know that that was a lot. And so um, I want to just read this quote for you and then I'll do questions if you have any. So Hebrews 1 says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Okay, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So what I want you to see is again, Hebrews especially reiterates this over and over again. If you were to read the book of Hebrews, you would get very clearly that Jesus is more superior than any main character in the Old Testament was. Even though those people did good things, Jesus was actually the fulfillment of them. And that's what I want you to see, Jesus as fulfillment. He's the fulfillment of what the word of God is always pointing to because he is the revelation of what God always wanted us to know. That he is actually the entrance into seeing God clearly and falling at his feet. That by seeing Jesus clearly, we see the love of God clearly and we simply are able to enjoy all that he is. Okay, so questions about this at all? You guys never have questions? Come on. (laughs) It's because I just have put so much information. You don't even have time to think, you know? All right. We'll keep moving on, but if you have questions, just interrupt me because I don't, I don't mind to be interrupted. Oh, yes, Roberta. 
<laughs> That's exactly what he does. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, we'll get to that. That's part of Jesus as divine. So we'll get to that in a moment. Any other questions about the Jesus as fulfillment before we move on? All right, we're going to keep trucking. So Jesus as divine. Okay, so I want to read for us those three passages there because I think it's just helpful, again, to confirm what Scripture is teaching us, okay? It says in Titus 2.13, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing, oh, not 13, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all the lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. John twenty twenty eight says, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. John 1, 1 through 5 and verse 14 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So again, we can see like Jesus is the Son. The Son is divine. Jesus is divine. So Jesus is God. Now, what does that mean to say that Jesus is God? Talk to me a little bit. If Jesus is God, what does that mean about Jesus? Hmm? He's all-knowing? What else? What's that? A, God has for sin. a disdain for sin? What else? What else do you think? All powerful? Yeah. Alpha and Omega? Beginning and end? Yeah. Eternal? What else do you think? He's love? Yeah. 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 Divine? Yeah. So here's the deal. Like this the reason I asked this question is because I just want to make sure we all have a good understanding of what we're saying when we're saying when when we're saying Jesus is God. Okay? We're saying that he possesses all of the characteristics of who God is. Every attribute that we could give to God, Jesus possesses as well. Okay? He possesses all of those things. He is at all time fully God. And this implies inherently that it always has to be true because God can't change. God can never change, okay? So God has to be God always and he always has to have the qualities of what make God, God. So the son didn't give up his divinity. So when Jesus became incarnate, it wasn't like he was leaving his, his divinity behind. That was not what happened. Jesus was divine, and, but he was also took on human flesh. That's what John 1 even says. He took on the nature of a servant. This is what Philippians 2 says. He became a human while he was also simultaneously God. And this is something that is, again, part of us needs to, part of us probably, I should say this, like this is a mystery at some level. Like we don't always, we don't know exactly how this works together. Uh, But this is what scripture is testifying to us about. 
And unfortunately, it doesn't give us the metaphysical explanations of like how this could be possible, right? But the point is, this is how it's describing who Jesus is. He's fully God and he's fully man. Now, the son always, it was always at one with the father in spirit, okay? Again, he's Trinitarian, right? So even if he took on the nature of a human, he didn't separate himself from them. That's not possible. God can't change. They are one being. You know, to, to separate himself from the Godhead would be to like kill the being in, in and of itself. It just doesn't work like that. So this is where the definition comes in. Jesus has two natures. The natures are human and divine, right? Jesus has two natures, but is one person. So when we mean by person, we mean like one center of like consciousness and, and reason and will, right? That's what we mean by that. He's two natures, divine and human, but there aren't two persons. It's still the son. This means he has one will. So he's not schizophrenic. Like there's not like the divine son there, but then also the Jesus guy there. That's actually human. They're not like dwelling in one body together or something like that. It is one person existing in human form that is the God man. He is one person with two natures. Um, fully divine, fully human. Now I know, again, this is a little bit hard to grasp with our language. And the truth is, is because God is beyond our language. These are the mysterious things that belong to God. And we don't know how they work. We want to, we will try as hard as we might, as hard as we may to fit it into categories and language that we have, but we simply don't possess it. And so this is what um, I, we have to recognize, at least in terms of how scripture lays it out. Now the reason um, Jesus divinity matters in the first place is to show at one level what humanity couldn't do. But before we get into that, I'll just say, do you guys have questions about Jesus being both fully human and fully divine? I should say that first. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Any other thoughts or questions? No? All right. We're gonna keep going. But again, interrupt me if you have any, okay? So the reason that Jesus' divinity matters is again, like when we talk about Adam, when we talk about sin entering the world through Adam and Eve, right? Ultimately what happens is all, it's like, a, sin is like a disease, you know? It's essentially seeped into humanity and it's passed on from generation to generation. Um, and so ultimately, humanity is it's incapable of, of obeying the law in the way that it's really called to. Um, like that's, this is what Romans says in Romans 3, all people fall short of the glory of God, right? Like at the end of the day, every person needs saving because we, are, we have this propensity to sin. We will just choose ultimately to sin against God. And so every single person falls short. We're all imperfect. We all deserve God's justice. So Jesus, this is where Jesus comes in. Jesus becomes the unique God-man, okay? That's not born of Adam's seed, right? He's not born from the genetics of a mother and father. He's born through the like miraculous conception. That's part of what makes that so necessary because he's not just like, 
you know, born through that line, first off, that would make him human just in general. But secondly, it would also, that disease in that sense would carry over. Like it would just continue to infect who he was. He's more of Adam before um, sin than we are, right? Because Adam before, before sin had this big scope of like, without having sinned, of like choice between good and evil. And we don't have that. But Jesus does. Jesus was born in a miraculous conception to have those, cap- those capabilities. So Jesus becomes this new Adam. And because of his perfection, because ultimately what we, what we attest is, and what scripture says, especially in Hebrews, is that Jesus was perfect, right? Like he lived a perfect, sinless life. And ultimately that allowed him to become the perfect substitute for humanity as a whole. And this is a really important part of why he was God and how, why it was so important that he was God because he could substitute himself for all of humanity and a sacrifice would totally cover it, okay? So First uh, John 2, 2 says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That propitiation just basically means he allowed the wrath of God to pass from us onto onto Jesus. He took, he basically took that wrath from God that was going to be toward us and put it onto himself and basically took on the penalty for our sins. First Corinthians 5.21 says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay. So again, Here's the two reasons I would say that are most important for recognizing why it's so important that Jesus is divine, outside of the fact that simply scripture tells us he was. In terms of practical terms, the, the divinity of Jesus assures his righteousness. So he's the, he's the righteous, perfect human that is able to ultimately pay the price. Divinity assures this. And divinity assures the efficiency the efficiency, I guess you could put it out because of your, the way I worded it on there. Divinity assures efficiency, which it means like of the sacrifice. So for instance, if all he was was human, okay, if all he was was human, then his sacrifice, what has generally been thought is his sacrifice would only cover one human. But because he is human and divine, his sacrifice can cover all of humanity. Because ultimately that that his, the cost at which he would pay is able to cover that in a way that covers more than just one individual, but, but more than that, several than that. So that's why the divinity of Jesus is so important. So questions about that at all? Yeah. Oh, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Let me see. Probably. Let's see. I'm checking 21. Yep, it's 2 Corinthians. Yeah, good catch. So 2 Corinthians 5, 21, we implore you on Christ's behalf, or um, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God, which is technically 20B, but yeah. And then 21 is for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yes, yeah, because ultimately he became incarnate, right? So he took on the nature of a servant, which that's that human nature. I think, it's, again, it's kind of using that hyperbolic language, that exaggerative language of saying he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, right? But made himself nothing. So he's basically using like this, the nature of a servant of humanity is nothing in comparison to who God is. Like the general comparison of an infinite being to a finite being like us is the difference between as far as you can think of, nothing at the bottom and being in general at the top, you know. Um, so that's what I would say is he's using that. Yes. Well, again, because he's, it's what he's emptying himself of is not his divinity, but the, the, the qualities or the characteristics or the, um, the, the transcendent aspect of divinity. So he's taking on human flesh, which makes him part of creation itself. And so that, that role as servant that he's taking on is means he's not utilizing the qualities of God even as he has them. So for instance, maybe this is a good way to explain it with an illustration. Like for instance, if you, if you tied me up right now, um, if you tied up my hands and my arms and stuff like that, I would be limited, but I, would not be, I, would, I, would, I wouldn't be less than human. I would still be a human, Right. And so that's what we're kind of saying, at least in terms of divinity and humanity together, is it's not like God is almost like he's tied up the, the qualities that he, um, that he has, which he could break at any time. He could use them at any time. You know, like I could break the strands if I wanted to. I could um, ultimately assume using my limbs again. But the point is he took those and he bound them up so that he could enter into a, the human condition and take on flesh like us. And so that's what we mean is like, it, just because he's tied up inside, like within as a human being doesn't make him less God. Just like me being tied up and not being able to use my arms and limbs doesn't necessarily make me less human, you know. Uh, but at any point I can change. I can get, whip my arms out. I can whip my legs out. But that's, and that's with Jesus. At any time he could do that, right? That's, he, he worked these miraculous things, um, right? But the point is that he has, at all times, he, he's trying to, to keep this in, taking on the nature of a servant and the role, having the same human experience that we had as a poor Jewish man and, and ultimately growing up with the same sorts of things that we experienced, um, despite the fact that he is at the same time divine. So does that make sense? Well, I would be careful there, but. Yes. 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 And here's where the. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> no, keep going. I'm interrupting. Well, I was going to say that the one, like, again, we have to be like, care, and this is why we have to be careful, like, how we word that. Because obviously, Jesus in the flesh, experiencing life as we experience it, and a relationship with the Father as we experience it is still a little bit different in how the son experiences the father. So to say like, you know, the, the best example of this is when Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane, right? And he's saying, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Because at some level, there is this actual experiential part of Jesus that has, in light of his like binding, you know, in light of his taking on the nature of a servant, that, um, that ultimately he's still 
trying to live within that relationship just like we are. But at the same time, what we have to make sure we clarify when we say things like that is ultimately like the son, the spirit, and the father all have the same will in their divine essence. But when Jesus takes on the nature of a servant, they still share the will, but he's experiencing that from a human standpoint, just like we do. And again, so again, it's, it's a little tricky to like articulate in our language, but. Yes, yes. Right, right. Right. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Any questions or comments about any of that? That's a good way to put it. Any other questions or comments? Okay. Um, let's look at Jesus as human. Jesus as human. So um, there are a lot of reasons, again, why it's important for Jesus to actually be human and not just a divine, like not just a, a flaming bush, right? We talked last week about how God actually uses, like he'll reveal himself in forms, like the bush, like the you know, the flaming bush or like the pillar of fire cloud um, or even like when the, the elders come and they, they eat with God, it says, when they're on the Mount, Mount Sinai or even when like he shows up in like in a glorifying state and basically says, you're not allowed to look at me, Moses, in this instance, right? Um, so there are forms that, that the Lord will use within the physical reality because again, he created all, all the particles we see, you know, uh, he created literally every part of who we are. He's the master of the universe, okay? So he can do those things. He can do whatever he wants. He made something from nothing just by speaking the word, right? And so he has this sort of power. But in Jesus, there's something uniquely happening by him taking on the form of human of nature and living in that nature for 33 years, what we think, you know? And so he's actually experiencing life as a human in a very specific way that is distinct and meaningful. And it's important that this humanity happens for a couple reasons. First one um, that I put is Jesus as Messiah. Jesus as Messiah. And again, we talked a little bit about what this really means, right? Like all of these scripture verses kind of are talk about the Messiah a little bit, pointing to who he was and what he would do. And Jesus, by showing up as, human, as a human, like it's again, fulfilling these expectations of what a, a human Messiah would do, of what he would ultimately accomplish. And so every time, again, you see that word Christ throughout scripture, that's, that's, an, emphatic, like, that's an emphatic title that's being attributed to Jesus. It's not just his last name, right? Like that means Messiah. It's the Greek um, for Messiah, which is Hebrew. And so it's a really important um, name to recognize. And again, it's used over 500 times in the New Testament and it's all associated with the fact that Jesus is the anointed one. He's the one that came to fulfill all of these things. And 
really it's part of the promises that God made that ultimately, again, like Corinthians talks about, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. You know, and that's, again, just pointing to that once more. And so Jesus becoming human fulfills that, those promises. The other one is prophet, Jesus as prophet. So the other aspect that Jesus does is he becomes a prophet to Israel and really all of humanity during his earthly life, right? He is articulating the will of God to them. And this is something probably that, you know, if you're not aware of, you should be. A prophet is not necessarily somebody who tells the future, right? They do, they can tell the future, but the point of a prophet, what they really are, is simply somebody who says what God tells them to say. And so if God tells them to say something about the future, then they'll tell the future. But the point isn't necessarily that they tell the future. The point is simply that they become a mouthpiece for God. And oftentimes what a prophet would do was to ultimately tell nation, the nation of Israel when they were out of line, when they were outside of their covenant relationship, when they weren't abiding by the things that they had promised to do and be within the covenant relationship. And so again, we see Jesus as fulfilling this role. He's constantly going to, the, to, the, um, to Israel and to the leaders and telling them like, you guys have missed the point. Like God desires mercy, not sacrifice. You know, the woes, for instance, in Matthew 23, where he goes through and just kind of berates the Pharisees because they think just because they're doing all the right things that they are the right people. And he's like, no, God's concerned with your heart, not just your activity. Like he wants to see that you actually love your neighbor as yourself. And so he's, he's correcting them. And actually in Matthew 22, Jesus does the same thing with the Sadducees who are another sect of the leaders of Israel. Um, and even some of the Herodians and teachers of the law, like Jesus, it's constantly correcting them. He's using that prophetic voice. And then ultimately he even recognizes that like the end is coming. You know, that's where we get like Mark... Um, 13 and Matthew 24 and these things that like talk about when the temple is going to be destroyed. Very prophetic, very, again, corresponds to a lot of the prophecies that happened with Jeremiah and Isaiah and the people that saw the temple was going to be destroyed by Babylon and Assyria. He's saying, yeah, the temple is going to be destroyed again. Like Jesus, again, he fulfills another parallel. He's fulfilling a prophet's voice and ultimately the temple would be destroyed again in 70 AD, right? And so Jesus often uses that prophetic voice to talk to people and ultimately um, bring out the fact that they are living apart from the covenant expectations. And this is really true in general because if Jesus wasn't just a prophet, right? Like he was actually the wisdom of God. He was the word of God. Like this was the articulation of all that he was. Like Jesus was God's self-disclosure to the whole world. So it wasn't just that Jesus was revealing something the father told him, but also revealing who God, the Godhead was in general. Um, and that's what we see in John 1 and Colossians 1 and 1 Corinthians 1 through 2 and Hebrews 1. Like he's actually articulating what the heart of God looks like and who God, what God is doing. And then lastly, and perhaps probably most importantly, maybe, I don't know, you could probably fight over that maybe, but um, well, actually there's two parts to this. Jesus as high priest is the first part. Jesus as high priest. And this is what Hebrews begins to explain and elaborate on. So Jesus takes the role of high priest, which if you don't know, the high priest was like the top um, position within the temple system, right? So you had priests, you had people who would do like basically daily services and things like sacrifices and, um, you know, lighting the incense or doing those different types of odd jobs around the temple. But then you had the high priest and the high priest was unique because he was from the line of Aaron in particular, but also because he was... Um, the high priest until he died. 
And so the high priest, essentially, what he would do is he would specifically offer the sacrifice for the Day of Atonement, which the Day of Atonement was a very special, unique day that they would go and offer a sacrifice to cover the sins of all the people of Israel. And it was the one day in the entire year that the high priest was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, which is like, this is where God dwelt. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was. This is where the, this glory would come down. And they had specific things they had to do to offer that sacrifice. Now, what Hebrews tells us is that this is exactly what Jesus does. Because the high priest, what the high priest does is he not, he, he's offering the sacrifice because he's representing the people of God to God at one level. But at the other side too, he's also representing God to the people of God. He's doing both. He's acting as a representative of both. And this is what Hebrews 4, 14 says. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So again, you can see here the language that identifies the beauty of Jesus being both divine and human, okay? So at one level, Jesus is a better high priest than any high priest that has ever served because Jesus doesn't just go into a physical holy of holies to go offer a sacrifice. He goes into the true holy of holies. When he dies and resurrects and ascends, like that whole moment there, that, holy, that, that event is essentially him going into the Holy of Holies, the true Holy of Holies, putting the sacrifice on the altar, which is himself, and ultimately allowing that to cover all of God's people. And again, because of his divinity, it covers not just one, but every single person, right? And because of his humanity, it can be one that is taken and received um, by being that, that substitution. He's giving up himself to do that, um, to ultimately become the substitute for our sins. And because he's human, he's able not just to do these things, um, like divinity allows him to go into the true holy of holies. His humanity allows him to offer his own body, but it also allows him to sympathize with those who, who he became like, right? Like he actually understands how we feel. He understands the temptations. He understands the, the weaknesses that we experience. And so ultimately, he allows himself to become the perfect high priest in that way. And this is what Hebrews 7 through 10 um, unpacks a lot. So if you read Hebrews 7 through 10, it'll talk about even how that happens because um, Jesus is not from the line of Aaron. So he's using it more as a typology than like a specific like Jesus is the true high priest, you know? He is saying that Jesus is the true high, high priest, but the way that he actually justifies that is because of Melchizedek, which this is a whole nother, that would take us a whole nother class, so I won't even get into that. But the point is, he is high priest forever because he does not die. And so he is able to forever be our representative to the Father. And that's a key point. So when we talk about praying in the name of Jesus, that's what we mean. It's not just like we're using that because we're so happy what, he done, what he's done for us. We're saying that because our representative, like when we say these things to God, like to the Father, and we say in the name of Jesus, that like Jesus is up with his Father saying, yep, yep, that's my son. That's my daughter. That's what makes it so meaningful about who Jesus is because he is able to identify who his children are, who is in him, and therefore work all this for the glory and good of God. And ultimately, it allows us to see that like, 
Again, really all of this, all of Scripture, it's pointing to Jesus because it's through the person and work of Christ that we get to enter into the Trinitarian life of God. I hope, I hope I've made that clear. Um, but everything is pointing to him. Everything is. And if you miss what he has accomplished on the cross and in his resurrection, you've missed the invitation to eternal life. And the point when I say that is not that you've missed a ticket to live forever. That's not what we're talking about. You've missed the life that never ends because it's God who is pure eternal life. It's him. It's his presence. And that presence is already breaking into this world. Eternal life is already breaking in because it's taking up residence in us. And what we're waiting for is, is just simply for him to finish all that he's done. And the reason he hasn't yet is simply because what he says even in Second Peter is that he's just far more patient than we are. And he wants every person to come to repentance. And so his patience, his, his waiting is simply that every person would come to see him as king. And so the son becomes incarnate so he can articulate the will of the Godhead and, re- and reveal him in totality. He reveals that God is far more patient and loving and sacrificial than we ever dared hope. He reveals the heart of God. And that is the point. Like God took on human flesh. He abandoned his glory. He lived the life that we were supposed to live. He was perfect in every way, righteous to the T. And even though he should have gotten all the blessing and we should have gotten all the curse, he takes the curse upon himself. This is the gospel message. He takes the the curse upon himself. He takes the wrath upon himself. He makes himself the sacrifice so that we could have the blessing, so that we could be clothed in his garments, so that we could enjoy the rewards and the inheritance that was only meant for him. There were prophets and there were kings and there were priests all before him, but none of them were perfect like he was. And yet he entered the Holy Holies himself and he put his own body on on the altar. And this is what shows us the heart of God. Because divinity assures us that the sacrifice covers every single person who chooses to receive his love and give, it, give him love in return. Like the, the, this, this person, the human Jesus, shows us the heart of God. Like he does not see you and say, ew, gross. He came into our realm. He stepped into our world. He took on human flesh. He walked with us. He recognizes and understands the pain that we have experienced. He has lost loved ones. He has been betrayed. He has been nailed. He has been abandoned and isolated and alone. And he did all of these things because he loves every single person on this earth. And he demonstrated that through Jesus. Like that is who this this all was about. That's who scripture was always pointing for so that every single person would see this because whether they see it or not, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, this is the king. That is what this life is about. And the point is what we enjoy in Jesus is not simply a future reality. He's already breaking in. And the point of what we embody now is simply trying to break that kingdom out more and more. Because Daniel even describes this in the book of Daniel. In Daniel 2, he says that there was the statue that was built. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream and there's this multi-layered statue, but the statue is dashed by one single stone. And the stone dashes all those kingdoms and then it becomes a mountain, it grows. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. He's become the firstborn from the dead. In fact, Ephesians talks about how he's the first stone, that like he's a living stone, that he's the stone that is now building others, that because of him being 
put as this first stone of this great temple that every single time somebody else comes in, we are actually being built into this new temple where the spirit of God resides, where he takes up residence, where he's living in his world once more. And really what we're waiting for is that to be totally accomplished, where revelation, the picture of the garden can come true, where, where every tear is dried up, where there's no more sickness or mourning or death or pain because the old order of things has passed away and a new city of God has taken over and there's no more fences, there's no more gates. It simply is open to everyone because we have come to see who Jesus is as our king. That's what, that's what everything is pointing to. So I hope I've stressed that enough, but it's so good. It's good. Jesus is good. And the point is that he reveals to us the Father and the, and the Spirit, and the Spirit especially is a, is a part of that revelation as well as it takes up residence within us. So um, any questions about, about what we've gone over tonight? Yes, that, that's technically true, yeah. There are, there are the, the gates are, are um, so the way that it, so let me, t- let me put it like this. Revelation talks about these gates, it talks about the city, but here's why it's talking about it. It's because it's actually, I think anyways, I think it's actually talking about the perfection of the city, not necessarily that these things are actually there. You know, there's no, there's no temple because there's no need for sacrifices, but we actually are the temple. We are the people who house the presence of God. And so these things are actually become symbolic for this new city that exists, which is not necessarily that there's actually gold, you know, gates that we're going to walk through and greet Peter. But in fact, that like, there's these beautiful stones and, and all of these things overlaid with gold. It's really just pointing us to the fact that the presence of God is here and that it's totally complete, which is why even the measurements that it gives you are all like, uh, you know, 144,000, like it says 144,000 people and it gives like 12,000 like cubits or I can't remember the exact measurements, but it's all symbolic of like actually the people of God coming together and making up the city. Um, And so technically that's true, but I just meant like there's no, it's not like, you know, keeping out things. (laughs) Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, I don't, I've never heard that before, um, at least in terms of his pre-death um, resurrection appearance. I never heard that that changed. I don't, I don't know if that there's as much biblical support for that that I've, that, I, that I've ever seen just in general. But certainly after his resurrection, his resurrection body is different in some ways. Um, and we don't know exactly like what, like what those differences are. You know, I've heard somebody talk about... Um, um, like maybe, like if you've seen somebody that like their body becomes totally healthy, like who had been just beaten up or like um, even like 
if, if you see like a drug addict, for instance, and you know, like the drugs can really have an effect on their skin and their, their body fat and all those things. But like actually, if they were to be totally healthy, like if their body was totally healthy, you would actually see them in a way in which like you'd, you'd almost not recognize them because they would look so different from one moment to the next. And, you know, I think that's a fairly good explanation. At least, again, we're speculating, right? We're speculating at this point. We don't actually know. It didn't tell us. But if, God, if Jesus has a resurrection body, then at some level, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's what our bodies were always made to be. You know, we, he, the, the perishable becomes imperishable. And so at some level, um, who he was was that was uh, the probably he's probably had a six pack you know you know I'm just kidding but he probably had a healthy body that maybe made him look different you know again speculation but who knows so how before the resurrection how was he in a crowd they could register well that's I mean that's all it says is he walked he walked through the crowd you know so whether that was because he's really sneaky or it's because like he used his own like divinity like to essentially like be able to weave through though. I mean, we just don't know, you know, speculation at that point, but maybe he did, maybe he did, but yeah, it's good. Interesting. Anything else? Any other questions, thoughts? Yeah. Oh, Oh, I didn't give you the other, I didn't give you some of these. Jesus has sacrificed is the last one. Yeah, I definitely didn't say them, so you're good. Jesus has sacrificed. And then humanity assures sympathy and humanity assures suffering. So basically, he allows him to endure the same, you know, things that we did and ultimately become the sacrifice we needed to, um, to be forgiven and with him again. Anything else? All right. It's good. Well, next week we're going to cover the Holy Spirit. And uh, again, it's going to be good. Appreciate you guys and coming with us, coming, coming with me through it. And uh, looking forward to next week. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christchurch, visit us online at cco.church.